You're listening to InkPod Episode 6, The Heptage Method. The thing I've learned is that you have to have a lot of grit. At some point, your determination is going to pay off. You're listening to InkPod. It's all about the stories. Welcome to InkPod, the podcast of the Writers' Alliance of Newfoundland and Labrador, bringing advice and inspiration to current and future writers across the province. In this episode of InkPod, host Jay McGrath talks with Emily Heptich about her new novel and working with the mentorship program of WANL. We're joined on InkPod today with Emily Heptich, and Emily is one of Newfoundland Labrador's newest novelists. Her debut novel from Flanker Press is The Woman in the Attic, um, and we're joined today with Emily. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We got, I want, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. Um, so let's, let's jump right in. Emily, you had, uh, I guess you had the privilege of participating in a Writers Alliance program, um, mentorship program for emerging writers. You recently participated in that program. You worked with an established writer and mentor, Alexis Ketting. Can you tell us about that program, Emily? That program was easily, to start off, one of the best experiences I've had as a writer. Um, so I was paired with my mentor, Alexis, who is also a mystery writer. Um, and together we worked over the span of about three-ish months on uh, a manuscript I had been working on for close to three years and I was very, very stuck with. So we quickly kind of became comfortable with one another and what we would do is because the book that I was working on was sectioned into parts as well as chapters I would send her like part one she would have a look at it she would edit it for me give me some feedback and then we'd meet over coffee and we'd discuss the changes one-on-one uh, -on -one. and over the course of those three months my manuscript went from something that I was so exhausted of just exhausted at looking at um to something that i'm super proud of so it was it was an amazing experience for sure it talked to us a little bit more about operationally so you talked about meeting with with alexis you know what does it look like with the program i mean with respect to uh you know day-to-day -day efforts week-to-week -week efforts like talk to us about that operational piece um so we met Typically, it was once every two weeks, once every three weeks. So I would send her a block. Um, so each part in this book had uh, five chapters. And so she would um, take the document and then we would use Microsoft Word track changes. And she would um, read the document, uh, give me suggested changes, and then explain in the margins what changes she was making. So we'd meet over coffee and we would go through those changes one by one and she would kind of anecdotally um, explain her changes and why she made them. So um, I found this really helpful because I, I really, I'm someone who really enjoys getting feedback back on my work. I'm always open to hear what other people have to say. Um, so I found this was incredibly helpful, but it was also encouraging because we had um, sort of tangible goals to reach uh, during each meeting. So we'd leave the meeting after discussing the changes and then I would look at those changes and then I'd rework what we had worked on. So in some, uh, in some cases I would have to write an entire new chapter 
because it just wasn't working for the story. Um, there was one particular chapter in general um, from one character's perspective that was just a dumpster fire. I mean, it was not working for the story. It was just, it was not consistent with the character. It just wasn't working. And so at the end of it, I think she told me she put it in this lovely, eloquent way. She said, um, you know, I think this, this chapter needs a lot of love. And I kind of took that, I took her suggestions and over the next few weeks, um, rewrote it. And it was, it completely changed my outlook on the story because suddenly my character made sense again. Um, the pacing was a lot better. And then the overall writing was, um, of a higher quality because I had someone to like point out my excessive use of that or my um, me using too many adjectives and not enough just blunt language. So it was a really, really helpful and productive way to work. Was there any, I mean, it sounds like um, you know, an intensive writing process, Absolutely. an intensive pairing. Was there any sort of clash of styles maybe clash is too strong over words but was there any of that sort of you'd get advice and go ah, but i don't know if that fits what i'm trying to do here my well i was very lucky in that sense because i mean alexis was so encouraging um in her feedback and she made it very clear from the beginning you know this is just my opinion as a fellow writer um it was less about um you know, here's how you can improve this as opposed to here's what I would do in your shoes. So for that, based on that, we kind of, I mean, we kind of clicked really well in a sense that we did have, we do have different styles, but we, we melded so well because we had that level of trust um, that I, I knew, I understood on a, on a very personal level that you know, she wasn't giving me these changes because she didn't like the work. She was giving them to me because she knew how to improve them. And so for that, no, I wouldn't say uh, there was kind of any clashing because I kind of understood that ultimately it was my work and I can choose to do what I wanted with it. Um, but I just appreciated her feedback so much and I valued the, the comments she was giving me um, so much that I kind of took all of her advice. <laughs> what do you think was the best piece of advice or, or what do you think if, if you were to, if you had to pick one, the biggest benefit you got from the program, what would it be? Having that person to tell you that something is working. Um, so for example, in the story, um, I don't explicitly tell you where this place is. Um, it's, it's kind of an anonymous setting. It's just this little town. All you need to know for the story is that this is a town only, what matters is only the context of this town. And I was really insecure about that. I, I felt like I really needed to clarify, you know, what country are we in? Are we in a state or a province? Um, et cetera, et cetera. But like, for example, Alexis looked at me one night and she said, no, I, I kind of like that I don't know the broader context of where this town is because she said it makes it feel even smaller and it makes it feel even more claustrophobic because all we have to go on is the horrible people that seem to exist in this town. And so just having that person to kind of bounce an idea off of and to feel that encouragement, um, I think that was the biggest takeaway um, and the biggest benefit to the program is just having that support system. 
would you say anything to somebody out there in listening to us in podcast land, uh, wherever they are listening, um, would you encourage them to use the program? 150%, 150%, regardless of what stage you are, you are um, at in your work, um, whether you have a complete manuscript um, or you have an outline or you have an idea that you think you're ready to engage in, this program, this program is going to help you get to the finish line or even the halfway point with the motivation to get to the finish line later. Um, you can't go wrong. And the mentorship program for emerging writers is offered through the Writers Alliance Newfoundland Labrador. Uh, you can find out more information about the program on the Writers Alliance website, wanl.ca. You're looking for the programs and services uh, in the top menu uh, and click on the mentorship program for more information on it. Um, you worked in that mentorship program on a project, I believe, uh, called Lavender Fields. Yep. Emily, is there anything you wanted to tell us about that work? Anything you can tell us? Or, or is that something we're just going to have to wait and see? I can tell you a little bit. I can give, I can give some, a little sneak peek about it. Well, so, we'll pull back the curtain a bit then. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so the Lavender Fields, uh, I've been working on technically for about almost four years. Um, it was an idea that kind of came to me, I'd say second year university when I got the name Ophelia in my head. Um, and I, I knew that this person Ophelia that I kept thinking about and I could, I could kind of see her very clearly. And I kind of knew she had a story she needed me to tell. Um, and jumping off from Ophelia, I, I realized that she had two little sisters named Luella and Elena who had a a pretty grim story they needed me to tell for them. So I couldn't stop thinking about them and I started writing it, I'd say in my second year of university. And I wrote about three drafts of the of the book and I could not <laughs> I could not get it right. So that's why I um I I applied for the men mentorship program because I, I knew that this was a story that I wanted to finish um but I just didn't know how to get there. Um it's almost complete. I'm still not 150% happy with it. I'm, I don't think I ever will be, but it's something that I'm still fine tuning and polishing just so that it's, it's precisely the way I want it to be. But it's a very uh, grim psychological thriller um, about a family that experiences a large tragedy. Um, and 12 years after the tragedy, uh, the sisters are trying to put themselves back together and put the pieces of the past together. So that's kind of what I can give away so far. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to take a little bit of that and transition our conversation to talk about your debut novel, The Woman in the Attic. You talk about um, Ophelia and her two sisters coming into your head and you had to write about them. You had to tell their story. Did did Hannah Fitzgerald appear that way? In a way, she did. Um, in the case of the woman in the attic, um, it was a house that really ignited the story in my head. So I went on a road trip with uh, my boyfriend last summer, and his grandparents are from a little community called Perry's Cove. 
And in Perry's Cove, there's this beautiful little saltbox house that's kind of sitting on the cliff there. And it, it is just, it's a piece of history. And I saw it and I was like, oh my God, now that is a place to set a story if there ever was one. Um, and I couldn't, I could not stop thinking about this little house on a cliff. And, you know, you can kind of drive through Newfoundland anywhere and you'll see these little saltbox homes that are kind of old and decrepit and they're just left um, they're just left with no one living in them. And I said, what if someone did live in them? <laughs> and it was kind of through there that I, I started asking myself, hey, like, who would live there? Who, uh, somebody, obviously, who has a secret that they need to hide? <laughs> because how could you exist in contact with nobody for that long? So Hannah kind of came to me through there. Hannah, I kind of related to Hannah in a sense that, you know, I always have kind of questions and I, 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 I kind of am always looking to be nosy in a way. <laughs> I, so she kind of came naturally um, to answer that question of who would live there and what would they be hiding? Well, the woman in the attic is set on the coast of rural Newfoundland. Hannah Fitzgerald's mother has lived uh, her life in near total isolation. Uh, when Hannah returns to the lonely saltbox house to prepare her mother for the transition into assisted living, her childhood home is anything uh, but welcome. Uh, while packing her mother's things, Hannah discovers a trapdoor to the house's attic, one she believed for most of her life had been permanently sealed shut. Uh, blinded by curiosity, Hannah enters the attic and finds mysteries and dark secrets from there. Uh, Emily, when I read this book, when I read your book, um, it was, you know, the sense of isolation, uh, a sense of claustrophobia was certainly evident uh, in the book. One of the things I found really interesting in the story, there is a parallel, I guess, what's happening with Hannah's mother's condition as well as the condition of the house. Um, you know, both seem to be deteriorating uh, at a particular, at a particular pace. Any comments on, on, I guess, certainly the plot overall, but anything you want to tell us about sort of that parallel that you struck between, you know, the house and Hannah's mother and their overall condition? Um, I kind of wanted to explore the idea of like breaking down um, after holding on to something for so long. Um, so in the case of a, uh, the, the mother, I will say the mother just to prevent um, any possible spoilers, but um, I knew that at this point in her life, she is holding, she has been holding on to something for a very long time. And now as her personal condition kind of deteriorates, she begins to break down. Um, similar to, you know, a house on the edge of a cliff in Newfoundland is going to take a beating from the wind and the rain and the horrible weather. And so that also is going to uh, kind of have a big of a bit of a breakdown. So I kind of wanted uh, to set to set the story in a in an, I guess, in a moment of that breakdown that happens after holding on to something for so long. So in the case of the house, the cliff, 
holding onto the cliff, trying to stay upright, trying to stay standing, trying to hold within it secrets and, and a person who's also holding on to things that they can't manage anymore. So I guess that's kind of, that was kind of my intention there. And it's a very complicated relationship um, in this story between Hannah and her mom. Um, Hannah, I think, is somebody, a character we could easily describe who had a lot of attachment injuries uh, as, a, as a child growing up in this environment and has now uh, you know, become, uh, entered, entered into adulthood and is now revisiting the, <clears throat> this home. Talk to us about that relationship between Hannah and her mother. Um, but overall, talk a little bit more about Hannah. I mean, Hannah's your central character. This is your first book. She's your, she's your star, your protagonist. Uh, tell us about Hannah. Hannah, uh, Hannah was kind of, um, to me, she was a girl that had to kind of learn how to be a person in a way. Um, and I was very interested in that idea of how does a person who's grown up in isolation understand the world and relate to it? Um, so she is a person whose reality for so much of her life has only consisted of, I mean, isolation and with the exception of her mother, who is not even um, a fully functioning person, who is kind of um, not so nice and not so stable. Um, and so I was very intrigued by the idea of how does this girl who has known one thing for most of her life, with the exception of the little time she spent with her dad, um, understand the working world and how, how, what kind of what kind of damage would that kind of childhood do to um, a person who has goals and has dreams and wants to move on beyond this isolated setting? So that was kind of my my inspiration of kind of getting into Hannah's psyche because I, I had to put myself in the position of if you don't know what it's like to go to a school and then suddenly you start university, what is that going to look like? How are you going to feel? Um, and second, second of all, how do you kind of make the connection between what is a healthy relationship, I guess, in this case with her mother, and what is a not healthy relationship? And how does the breakdown of understanding that um, difference happen. So that was kind of what guided me through writing her. Tell us about releasing a book in the middle of a global pandemic. Not even in the middle, I guess, because I guess when it gets released, we're just kind of settling into the fact that we're living in a global pandemic. Um, yeah, was, tell us about that experience. It was kind of crazy. So we, of course, we were in the middle of the editing process when you know, we started hearing the news of the coronavirus and naturally no one could have anticipated what it would turn into, um, unfortunately. Um, but it was, we were already in lockdown um, when, you know, the book went to print and um, we weren't sure how long it was going to last. I mean, at the beginning of isolation, we really weren't sure how long it was going to take to have a vaccine, obviously, how long um, the measures would be in place. But I decided I was like, I'm going to put it out of my mind. I'm not going to worry about it <laughs> until the book is here. Um, so we just kind of, I kind of rolled with the, I was trying to roll with the flow, not put any expectations out there um, and just try to enjoy the process as it happened. So when the book came out, um, of course, there was a little bit of a delay. It came out on the 22nd. And of course, with 
the pandemic and all of its many complications. It was uh, a couple days um, late getting here, but um, we we made the best of it. I think that that's the best way to explain it. There was nothing we could do, so you know, having expectations and crying over it wasn't going to help us. So we just decided we were going to roll with it. So the day the books got in, um, of course, I went into the office to to look at these books, um, which was, I mean, a dream come true, of course. But uh, with social distancing in mind, um, the team kind of came, and we all stood six feet apart with our masks on, and we all just we had a great day. We had a great afternoon signing books, um, celebrating the release. So releasing a book in the middle of a pandemic just kind of served to prove to me how much I have to be thankful for, because even though the world was quite literally on fire at the time <laughs> that the book came out, we still were able to have a wonderful time um, and to celebrate this good thing that happened after years of dreaming about it. So it was pretty cool, even even despite. Well, let's, let's sort of pick up a little bit from there. You know, you talk about it being a dream. How does it feel? Emily, I'm curious, how does it feel when you see, you go into a bookstore and you see your book there? Or you go into a library and you see your book there? Or you go online and you see it? How does, how does that make you feel? I, I, like, I really don't have a way to articulate it adequately. Like, I, I, I still can only explain it as a surreal feeling. It's, I walk into a store and I see it there and it doesn't even feel like it's connected to me at all, <laughs> in a way. Um, because it's just so strange to know that, like, something that I worked on for you know, however long is like there and people are reading it and people who don't just know me are reading it. Um, it's just the most surreal, unbelievable feeling ever. And I mean, it's so exciting. I can't, I can't tell you how exciting it was and how nerve wracking it was, but it was, I think the first time in my life, um, when I picked up that book, it was like for the first time in my life, I felt this sort of, it was like, all I could think of was like, finally, it's finally in my hands. And knowing that I was like, I can, I can die happy now. I was like, my biggest dream, biggest bucket list uh, check has been completed. And it was just the most surreal feeling on earth. Talk to us about, um, you know, it's a flanker press production, you think, uh, Writers Alliance in the acknowledgments. Talk to us about the support you got from uh, Flanker and from the Writers Alliance. Well, the Writers Alliance is, was completely instrumental in the publishing of this book. Um, they are just phenomenal in every way. I mean, it's such a wonderful place for writers to meet other writers. Um, and it was actually through Wannell's uh, AGM last year that the book kind of got into the hands of the publisher, um, of course, Flanker Press. Um, so last year, uh, the Writers Alliance put off an event called um, Pitch to the Publishers, or Pitch Wars, I think we, we called it in, in a very non-threatening way. Um, <laughs> and so basically, we had to get up in front of an audience, um, and we had two minutes to pitch to a panel of publishers in the province why they should publish our book. So the support from Wannell was instrumental because I don't think if I 
if I hadn't had that experience, I might still be waiting on an answer for the woman in the attic. Um, so they were, of course, a huge player in this in this amazing journey. Um, just just the team itself, like Jen and Wendy, are are amazing, and all of their all of the Wannell team members. Um, the the write-ins that they have, well, we used to have back before all of this madness happened. Um, everybody who shows up and, and just has a chat with each other. I mean, it's just a wonderful community environment that's kind of um, irreplaceable. So no matter what you're working on, you kind of have that, that support system and you feel encouraged and supported, which is, it's amazing. Um, Flanker Press, I mean, they're an amazing team, truly. I can call them, I, I feel comfortable enough with them that I can call them at any point in the day and ask a question or, you know, kind of propose an idea and I know they have my back. Um, they're super, they're super transparent and honest. So I always knew that my, my best interests were represented by them. Um, they're fair and equitable and just knowing that the team who are going to take on my first book were as good as Flanker was, was, I mean, I don't think I could have done it without them. I, I, I truly felt supported throughout every part of the process with them. So they were an amazing team to work with. So I could not have done it without all of the people that were involved in the, in the writing and in the publishing of this book. And so your, your, your first book's published, uh, you've worked on another one through the mentorship program. <laughs> I understand from, uh, pre-recording, you do have a, a, another story that's that's near completion. I'd like you to take a bit of time to talk to people who, well, who are in a similar situation to I'm in, someone who is aspiring to be a published writer, mm -hmm. um, who has a story, who's worked on it, who's had it edited, but you know, really needs to just try to make it to that next level. Um, what is your advice for us folks? I think the biggest, um, the thing I've learned is that you have to have a lot of grit. So, you know, part of the process is realizing that there's gonna be a lot of doors shut in your face and there's going to be a lot of no's. There's going to be a lot of waiting and loneliness and insecurity that you have about your piece. But what's going to make the difference is hanging on and believing in yourself and your project um, and knowing that at some point your determination is going to pay off. Um, I mean, I, I've been writing novels literally since I was in grade seven. Like I wrote a, a little novel in grade seven and truly thought I was the next, uh, I was the next big thing, you know what I mean? But obviously, in hindsight, thank God that book wasn't published. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's a long process and it's and it's a difficult process. And I don't think anyone ever realizes how difficult it can be to write a book because I mean it's it's a laborious and lonely process. <laughs> laborious, sorry, and, and lonely process. Um, but what makes the difference is you got to have grit. You got to hold on. You got to be able to wait. You have to look for the opportunities and take them when you can get them. And despite how nervous you may be, you have to believe in yourself and your project. Both, both aspects of that are important. You have to believe in your project, of course, but you also have to believe that you are worthy of being published. 
because I believe everyone who has a story, everybody who finishes a novel deserves to be published. So you have to have that belief in yourself. It is a lonely process though, isn't it? Very lonely. The loneliest. <laughs> you're in a world that you're creating for, you know, X amount of hours. And I guess, um, I know you had said uh, in, in another video or interview that you did, um, you talked about being a fan of Stephen King. Um, and Stephen King in his book, um, writing talks about, uh, he has an ideal reader that he sort of keeps in mind when he's writing his stories. Um, do you, I mean, I guess we, we just talked about and acknowledged that this writing process is very, can be very lonely and isolating. Um, and I think at least that's how I interpreted what Stephen King's advice was about, well, he always has that ideal writer in mind. If not an ideal writer, is there something though that, that you put into your process while you're doing it that sort of alleviates some of that loneliness? So this is kind of a, a, a difficult one to answer because I don't, I don't really know, to be honest. Um, I don't have an ideal writer, uh, and that's because everything that I write, um, I kind of write for myself first, if that makes sense. Um, I think it's very important that to go into a project understanding that ultimately this is a story that's for you, the writer. Um, and then after, after the fact, you know, hopefully people will get to read it and enjoy it as well. But for me personally, it's kind of useless for me to write something with an audience in mind because then I kind of unconsciously begin to write for the audience and I'm, I'm trying to cater to this imaginary audience instead of working on the project um, with the goals I had originally. Um, so I guess for me personally, it's not so much an ideal audience or an ideal reader that I'm writing for, but it's, it's for my own personal satisfaction and my own personal passion um, and my love for the characters. To make it less lonely, I try and, I just try and break out of my shell a little bit. I try to share what I'm working on. So I have a couple of really close friends that are also writers um, and we share each other's work. Um, I'll send one of my really good friends uh, a chapter at a time and she'll read it for me. She'll, she'll tell me how she likes it so far. And we try to steer away from critique and try to instead view each other's pieces as um, books we're reading, um, not necessarily reading for the purpose of editing. <laughs> um, so that kind of takes the loneliness out of it, um, for me at least. Um, and then of course, understanding that, you know, I'm, I'm gonna write for myself first and enjoy sharing it later but i always try to keep the heart of the project in mind um, so i'm not unconsciously trying to cater to an audience in my head <laughs> Fair that's enough. kind of a long-winded answer i know but um yeah i don't know if i agree with king on that note well hey i he would probably appreciate a disagreement maybe hopefully <laughs> Um, I want to ask you one other thing that I'm super curious about uh, with your uh, novel, The Woman in the Attic. Um, 
I had heard in, I think, a Q&A that you did um, and available on YouTube um, that a friend gave you the picture for the cover. So the house that you, sort of the inspiration from, I think you said Perry's Cove, yeah. is not the house necessarily that's on the cover of the book. So what I'm curious about, has anyone come forward and said, sure, that's my house? Um, yeah, actually, um, <laughs> uh, only recently I found out, I can't remember, I don't have the person's name, but I recently found out that, um, it's, the house is in Trinity, and, um, it's, it's someone who is affiliated with Blanker, again, I'm not sure, was like, yeah, that's my house. The picture, so what happened with the, the cover idea was that, as I, as I was writing the book, I made kind of like a mock cover to motivate myself. And I put a little quote on the top from Gillian Flynn, who's my favorite writer. <laughs> so I could look at it and like, just feel inspired. And so when I, when Blanker accepted the novel for publication, um, I sent the picture of the cover and I said, hey, do you think we could come up with anything somewhat similar to this? And um, their amazing graphic designer, Graham Blair, came up with uh, the cover that it is and it was so close to my original design but the house um that graham used was just even better um and anyway we found out that the house is apparently in trinity and someone still owns it so i was like awesome it's a newfoundland house it's not just a some random square house that i found on pinterest <laughs> that that is cool that is a cool story uh for your for, for your first cover emily let's talk a little bit about uh, what's been pinned, the Heptich Method. Um, I, I want you to explain what it is, uh, but I will preface it by saying, uh, for those of you who don't know what it is and are about to find out, when I first heard about it, it seemed a little intimidating uh, to me. So, Emily, tell us about the Heptich Method. Um, I want to <laughs> put the disclaimer out that the Heptich Method so far has been a one-time thing <laughs> and may never happen again. But, um, and it was, uh, it was a method that was born completely out of necessity um, is part two of that disclaimer. So basically uh, last year when I was writing the book, um, I had worked full-time all summer and I had been in university for four years up until that point and I was about to head into my fifth year um, to do uh, some research. And I had just fallen into this creative slump where I had not written anything of volume in years. I, I was completely detached from my writing, it felt, besides like personal journal entries and whatnot. And at, at the second week of August, my job was coming to an end. So I had two weeks left of summer <laughs> before I had to go back to school. So they were supposed to be two weeks of vacation, um, but I was like, I, I feel like I need to get back into writing. So I think I'm going to, I'm going to take those two weeks and just work on something. And then I saw the salt box house and I got the idea for the woman in the attic. And I was like, Hmm, this is a really good idea. I feel like, I feel like I'm really ex excited to write this story. So, you know, maybe that's what I'll work on for the two weeks. But then I also didn't want to get into the position where I got something half finished, got back into school and then, never touched it again. So I found out about um, Ian Fleming who wrote James Bond and apparently he wrote the first draft of James Bond in three and a half weeks. So the gears started turning. 
And I was like, okay, well, I don't have three and a half weeks, but I do have two. <laughs> so I was like, am I going to try to do this? Am I going to try to finish this book in, in two weeks? And then the competitive side of me came out and I was like, yeah, I can do that. I can, you know, grind it out for eight days or whatever, 14 days or whatever it's going to take. Um, so that's what I decided to do. I was like, okay, I'll film myself, make little video diaries so that I'll hold myself accountable and I'm going to try to write a book in two weeks. So I, uh, I went out of town. My boyfriend worked, was working in Gander, um, over the summer. Uh, so he was out there and I said, well, you know what, I'm going to meet you out there where I'll be away from all distractions and, um, I'm going to write this book. And so I took those two weeks and I would go in in the morning at eight o'clock. I'd start eight o'clock sharp with a copy in my hand and I'd write eight to 10,000 words a day, just with no lapse in focus. Um, and I ended up on the eighth day, I was at like 70,200 words or something. And I was like, I think I'm going to finish this faster than I thought. And on the eighth, eighth day lunchtime, it was done. Um, I don't remember most of it, to be honest. Like, I feel like I was literally just in the matrix, like just spitting words out onto the paper. But um, it was like the coolest thing I feel like I ever did. It was so much fun. Um, it was so difficult, but I mean, it was, it was an amazing experience. Well, one day I'm sure must have just bled into the next, which bled into the next. I mean, yeah. would, would you do it again? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I would. I, I, I would love one day to kind of, like, I know that a lot of people do challenges like NaNoWriMo. Um, so I'd love to, like, do it again and try to inspire other people to give the crazy challenge a chance. Because it was, I mean, it was difficult, but it was so, it was almost like motivating me to continue to do it because it was like, it was such an adrenaline rush. <laughs> like the first day I wrote and I hit 10,000 words, I was like, I got to do this again. Cause this is, this is wicked. And, um, it, like it just kind of, it one day bled into another, but you kind of saw the fruits of your labor so quickly because in like three days I had 30,000 words done. And I was like, oh my God, that's a third of a book. So it was, I mean, I mean, I'd do it again. Yeah. And I, I'd, I'd hope people would join me in trying. Um, though, how, how do you compare that draft after the eight days to the, the final product? Were there drastic, any drastic changes? I mean, with, you know, keeping in mind, we'll, we'll keep it spoiler free, but how true was that version to what you can pick up through Plank of Press? It, it's pretty close, to be honest. Um, so I went into it kind of prepared. I, I made an outline beforehand. Um, and I kind of plotted specifically what was going to happen per chapter um, and how it was going to happen. So I kind of had an idea of what I was going to be writing. Um, so that kind of left for, um, so there wasn't a lot to change in terms of plot and in terms of character. Some of the major changes were, so the original draft was a little over 80,000 words. Um, and of course, the final draft is a little less than that because there were certain scenes that I cut um, and certain paragraphs that didn't work out. So there was definitely some material taken out. Um, but ultimately, like, the, the editing was a lot of um, copy more so than um, plot-driven changes. 
Um, of course, there was so many typos because when, <laughs> when you're working that fast, you're not sure most of the time. But um, it wasn't. It, it's not too different, to be honest. So you would encourage others to take this on? I would. I, I mean, you have nothing to lose. Even if you come out of the other side of it and you have 40,000 words written, I mean, you got half a book. There. So, I mean, it's, and it's, it, it's definitely, it's not an easy thing. Like it wasn't, like there was definitely some days when I was like, I never want to write another story again in the rest of my life. <laughs> but um, when you come out the other side and you know that regardless of what your goal is, you know that you've, you've accomplished that kind of feeling, you kind of feel you feel unstoppable and it's, it's a really awesome, awesome boost. What did day nine look like? I feel like for me, I would have had to, you know, lay down, maybe <laughs> binge the show on Netflix. Like what did, what did day nine look like? I was like lost on day nine because I had been in like some kind of trance for like <laughs> the past week where I was like, I had a mission for the day and I, I was like propelled by the mission. But day nine, I was just like, okay, well, I'm absolutely not going to look at this manuscript today. Like <laughs> I need a rest, but um, I don't know. I just kind of took the day off, read some. What, was it a bit like coming down off a bit of a holiday? Um, yeah, it was, it was just kind of peaceful. It was like, I don't know, that kind of, that dopamine rush you get when you, yeah. you complete a task. It was like, I was like, oh, now I can enjoy these last few days of vacation before I go back to school. But it was, it was really, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it... I was about to concede that it does sound a bit fun, but I will also have to concede that it still sounds a bit intimidating. It's, I, I, I don't know how to explain it. Well, it, cause like in hindsight, like the thought of doing it again makes me feel fatigued <laughs> Just <laughs> <laughs> to do it again. But I totally think if you like, if you have a story in your head and you are dying to write it and you want to really push your creative limits i mean i i the best things are you know nothing nothing good comes easy so you kind of got to fight for it you got to have that grit and you'll know at the end of it look what even if you don't i mean you don't have to hit eighty thousand words you can hit your goal could be twenty thousand words but when you hit that goal you're gonna feel you're gonna feel pretty cool and you're gonna feel like you know what i can finish this book Emily, let's switch gears a little bit, because as I understand it, one of the things that you are interested in in your storytelling is screenwriting. Yeah. Um, tell us about your interest in screenwriting. Um, I don't know. I've always been interested in it. I, I, like, I love TV so much. Like, <laughs> I'm such a geek when it comes to good TV um, and good series. Um, and once I kind of wrote a book and I saw that, you know, after a long time of waiting and a long journey to get there, um, it's possible. So once that happened, I was like, you know what, maybe writing for screen or, or for film is, is possible. So it's, it's definitely something that I would love to do one day. Um, I would, I mean, I would just love an opportunity to adapt my own stories in some way, but I just think it'd be amazing. Do you have that lens on your writing? So like when you're when you're sitting down writing the woman in the attic, yeah. 
do you sort of keep that lens of, well, if I someday am going to screenwrite this, is that sort of something you keep in mind or no? Like that's out, that's out the window. You want to get the story down and that's something you think about afterwards. Uh, what, what happens is, is that like every scene that I'm writing like plays in my head almost like a movie. Um, so like when, like, uh, for example, in the first scene when Anna's, or when Hannah is driving down the, the highway, I can like see that and I can see like the shots of her like with the window open and the wind blowing through her hair and the music on the radio. Um, so I can see it playing out as a scene and I guess that that's what kind of motivates me to finish the scene. Um, but like in terms of actually like writing for screen, it's so much, so much harder than I expected it to be because I'm not good at just strictly visuals. Like a lot of my writing is so, um, I don't know. It's so. Well, it's emotion. It's internal. Yeah, it's internal. That's, that's exactly the word. And so like making that transition to writing, you know, about what you see and smell and feel and, and, you know, hear in a scene and just going to what you see and what you hear that that's been really difficult. So yes, to answer your question, yes and no, like I, I they're playing in my head like scenes, but they're not looking like them on paper. <laughs> like, Okay, so I got to follow up on something you said there because I'm super curious and I have an admission to make and I'd like to compare notes. Uh, you said the first scene, you picture Hannah driving down, you know, the, the isolated roads towards that house. Um, when I was reading it, I will admit that I did uh, have a couple of Hollywood people in mind, um, particularly for Hannah and her mom. Did you... And can we, com if you did, can we compare who we had in mind? I don't, I don't know if I had an act, like they, I know what they look like in my brain, but I don't think I had Hollywood people. I, I know that sounds weird, but like, I, I find it really difficult to, to imagine characters and books as Hollywood people. Like my brother loves doing that. He loves like <laughs> casting books or whatever, but like, I can't do it because they're unique people in my head. Like, I can see them as people. Like, I know if I were, like, I don't know, like, if the movie was being cast, I know what I'd want them to look like. But, like, I have nobody in mind, Hollywood, to, like, to cast. I don't know. Uh, Hannah could be, like, Saoirse Ronan, because I just love her. That is that who you're thinking? exactly who I had in mind oh. for Hannah, was Saoirse Ronan. Are you kidding? It has to be so Saoirse Ronan. It has to be her. I adore her. I think she's amazing. We're gonna get. We're gonna. We're gonna message her on her social media. We gotta see if she can get on board. I I agree. I'm so glad you agree. That's so weird. Saoirse Ronan and I will say I pictured Tony Collette as the mom. <gasps> Tony Collette would be so good. That's who I pictured. Oh man, that would be. I. Oh my God. Yes, I 100% agree. Now, now that's all I'm going to think about when I think of the <laughs> <laughs> um, you, uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, you, uh, you mentioned Tillian Flynn, you mentioned, or I mentioned Stephen King, uh, both of those folks uh, have had their works turned into things, uh, projects for the, uh, for TV or for movies. Um, you also, from some of your previous interviews, mentioned your admiration for Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Always. <laughs> um, 
And, yeah. you know, and, and that is someone who, you know, I guess now here we are in 2020, I mean, is there a more successful person in that genre? Um, how, I guess what, the question I'm trying to ask here is, you know, you have a novel and you have more novels coming, um, but you seem uh, completely smitten with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, uh, who, who doesn't write novels. Right. So how does she inspire you? Uh, primarily by her use of dialogue. Um, to be able to establish, like, her character of Claire in Fleabag, for example. We don't see a tremendous amount of Claire. I mean, she's a reoccurring character in the show, but we really only understand Claire through her dialogue. And to be able to completely create a character who is so concisely understandable just through what they say, I, I've never seen that done as effectively as Phoebe Waller-Bridge does it. I mean, like, Claire has, makes a comment, I believe, in one of the episodes where she says, God, I can't wait to be old. And in that one line, I understood Claire. I was like, I know exactly that she's going through a crisis. I know she's not happy with life. Like, but it was just the most effective use of dialogue I've ever seen in, in writing. Um, so that, and I also just love, there's something so nice to see about Phoebe Waller-Bridge and her completely dis like her complete disinterest in um, shying away from the truth. I, I think it's so cool to see like uh, I mean a female writer, for example, who is gonna joke about what she wants. It's gonna make the comments that she wants to make. Who's not gonna worry about judgment um, for her decisions and her uh, you know her crude behavior. And I I just think that being able to be confident enough to take those risks in your writing and not to care about how people are gonna perceive it. Um, I just think that's something to be admired because, I mean, one thing I struggle with as a writer is, is being afraid of people hating the work or being offended by the work. Um, so kind of just being confident enough to go into something and say, this is, this is my truth and I'm going to speak it. I, I think that's awesome. I want to share with you a, a quote from, actually, she was asked by Vogue in their series, 70 Questions, um, what our favorite quote was. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna share it with you and then I'd ask you to respond to it. Uh, so they asked Phoebe Waller-Bridge what our favorite quote was and she said, we write to taste life twice. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. There's, there's a, a small, anecdote of writing by Sylvia Plath that describes a woman sitting under um, a fig tree or a plum tree, one of them, and she's looking up and all of the fruit is a life that she can have, but she can only pick one. So she's looking at a life where she's a matriarch and she's a happy wife and mother. There's another where she's a, a you know, a successful best-selling writer. There's another where she's an academic um, and she's under this tree and she's just stressing herself out about trying to pick which one and she's under there trying to choose which life she wants for so long that all the fruit rots and falls down and 
she never ever picks a single one. Um, and so for me, that is a tremendous source of anxiety for me is understanding where I'm going and what I want to do with my life and um, what is the next best move. Um, so writing has always been my way of tasting all of those lives. Um, you know, I, 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 I could write about, like, for example, um, uh, a character I'm working on now is a journalist. I'm not a journalist, but in a way I can live vicariously through her and learn what it's, you know, it's not going to be the real thing, but I can pretend I am a journalist in those pages. And so I get a little bit of a, of a sense of what it might be to be like one. Um, in another piece, I'm hiking through the western Newfoundland mountains. And, you know, I haven't done that yet. I, I've, well, I've done that a little bit, but not to the extent of these characters. And, you know, it's a way of putting myself there and getting to pretend for a little while that that's, that's my life. So I would say I agree with that, definitely. I'm going to follow up that. Um, you, uh, in, in an interview I saw with you, you said, and you alluded to it in this conversation as well. You know, you you felt like you've always you were always a writer. Um, this is you know, it's it wasn't for you. It wasn't this is what I'm going to do, but this is what I've always done. Yeah. Why? Like in a world, Emily, where we can be anything. Um, why why do we why do us people who are trying to aspire to be to be writers or who uh, already started on that path and have a book. Why? Why are we writing? I wish this came with a simple answer, um, but I don't think there is one. For me, writing has always been my way of understanding my world. Um, I don't know if this is similar to the way that you feel about it, but for me to fully process something that's happening or to fully um, understand a piece of my world that's new or that's unusual. Um, writing has always been the way I do that. And I think writing connects us because, I mean, you can read a story and you can feel connected to that person or that setting or that story. And regardless of what you're reading, I think there's similar themes among it all um that kind of reach us as just as humans and i think writing is the purest way to do that i so, would agree yeah I, I i don't know if that makes sense i find this hard to explain but for example um going back to um phoebe waller bridge i mean we can all we we're not all as obnoxious say as fleabag is or we're not all psychopaths like villanelle in her show killing eve but um, we can all relate to hurt because we've all felt hurt at a time in our life. And I think writing is what makes us feel less alone in the world. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's, uh, that's profound. Um, one of the things that interests me as well about writing or trying to write, um, I've always just loved stories. And I think yeah. the thing that fascinates me with stories is that in the end, that's what we are. That's all we are. 
you know, when when we're uh, you know, no, when when a writer is no longer here, or not even a writer, when a person is no longer here, that's what still exists of them is their stories. So that concept of stories, I think, is always it, it, that's what's always been fascinating to me. That's that's a beautiful way to put it. I completely agree with you. Another yeah. thing. Oh, sorry. No, you're totally. No, I was just going to say you're totally right. Something else you said. Um, you want to write about things that comment on society. Emily, what do you want to say about society? I think ultimately I want to promote in my writing um, empathy. Um, I think that every person, good or bad, no matter what stage in life they're in, we can relate to the world a, lo a lot better if we're empathetic and we can try to adopt at least an understanding of someone else's world. Um, and so I, I write characters that are, are difficult people um, or are in a difficult place in their lives with the hope that maybe if we can learn to understand them a little or we can even learn to appreciate that we can't understand everybody, that maybe that'll produce a little bit of an empathetic response in the reader and maybe we can be more empathetic as a people. Well, you know, if there's one thing the world could uh, always use more of, it's certainly, certainly this world, uh, yeah. it's empathy. Um, you got another project actually from what I hear and by me, what, what I mean by what I've heard is what you've said to me pre-recording. Uh, you have another project like that we can maybe get our hands on soon. Do you want to tell us about that? Absolutely. So um, there is a new book in the works. Uh, should be out in the spring, um, exactly when is to be determined. But um, I'm working on the last draft of it now, um, trying to correct everything, make sure everything is consistent and uh, the continuity is okay. But um, it's called Alone on the Trail. So uh, I do a lot of hiking. That's one of my other major interests. And I got this idea when I was hiking one day, I was like, I want to write a book about hikers. Um, but naturally, I, I'm not as interested in, in kind of just survival stories. Um, but in, in people, I, I find people and characters and, you know, path is um, very interesting. So I said, how can I write a book that's about hiking, that's about um, that, that has high stakes, um, but also goes back to that theme of imperfect people who are, you know, making mistakes and hiding secrets and struggling to get along. Um, and so Alone on the Trail is, is just that. So it's a book about four best friends who um, graduate university and decide that they're going to take a backcountry hiking trip um, on Western Newfoundland. And they begin their journey and unbeknownst to them uh, they are grossly underprepared and very ignorant to the dangers that come with hiking um, backcountry trails. So they find themselves in a very sticky situation um, and they have to find a way to get out of it. Um, and then you know it's it's not just a survival story because it's a story about friendship and the trials and tribulations of friendship, 
of relationships um, and how people kind of get along and don't get along. So it, it's a lot of fun. I, I've had a lot of fun writing it. And I think if you enjoy The Woman in the Attic, um, you may enjoy this one as well. Well, for anyone listening out there in podcast land, that was a little teaser of the next uh, Emily Heptich work, Alone on the Trail. Uh, her first work, The Woman in the Attic, uh, is a book you can pick up now. Emily, do you want to tell uh, the folks listening where the best places to find The Woman in the Attic is? So The Woman in the Attic, uh, you can find it at Costco um, in St. John's. You can find it in Chapters Indigo. Um, you can find it uh, directly through Flanker Press on their website, or you can give the office a call and place an order. Um, it's also available as an ebook through the major ebook retailers, so Kobo, Kindle, um, Apple Books, etc. Um, all available sources. Um, yeah, and it's also available in um, a variety of different um, gift shops and independent bookstores across the island. Emily, is outside of um, finding the book, uh, is there anywhere you want people to find you? Uh, social media platforms that you encourage people to follow you on? Do you want to tell us about those? Absolutely. So you can follow me on Facebook on my page, uh, Emily Heptage Books. Um, I post there pretty regularly. You can get some uh, any upcoming news or information there. Um, I also have an Instagram page, uh, again, Emily Heptage Books. Um, and then I post updates occasionally on there too so you're welcome to follow and uh, correct me if i'm wrong um you uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, you sort of uh you journaled the heptage method when you were going through it is that where is that available if people want to sort of follow that journey with you through those eight days where can they find that um you can find that uh on youtube through the flanker press uh youtube channel Gotcha. So if you look up um, Emily Heptage at Planker Press, you can find the video. And it's called How I Wrote a Book in Eight and a Half Days. So you've been listening to Emily Heptage, author of The Woman in the Attic. I'm Jay McGrath. Thanks for listening to InkPod. If you like the show and want to know more, or if you have ideas for topics or guests for future episodes, please email us at podcast at wanl.ca. If you are a resident of Newfoundland and Labrador, consider becoming a member of the Writers' Alliance, a not-for-profit, member-based organization serving the literary arts community since 1987. Check us out at wanl.ca. That's W-A-N-L dot C-A. You're listening to Inkpot. It's all about the stories.